You're too poor. You're not black enough. You're not white enough. You're too short. You're fat. You're a girl. You're too young. You've got little kids. You're not tough enough to go to war. It's not your turn. I've heard it all before, but I've never let it stop me. I would never let it stop my kids. Don't let it stop you. Welcome to this episode of Longest War. My name is Lauren Del Ritchie. I'm a United States Navy veteran and currently a fellow with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Ariana, I know you're an Army veteran. Welcome to the Longest War podcast. How are you today? Good. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I was really excited to hear that you agreed to do the podcast with us. I know you have lots of great things to share with us. <laughs> so let's jump right into it. Sure. I know that you're an Army veteran. So tell me a little bit about what led you to choose the Army. I mean, it was about two months after 9-11 when I decided to join and not having anybody in my family who served before. I didn't have a good understanding or indication of you know what branch of service would best suit me. So I can remember going into the mall because that's where the recruiting stations are. And, you know, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force, Navy, they're all like right in a row. And so I can remember like walking into each one and kind of getting the spiel <laughs> and then going, hmm, okay, I'll think about it. And like turning around and walking out. And I walked into the Army's um, recruiting station and they said to me, well, you know, we've got the most women and by far the, the largest branch of service, you'll get the most support. We have, you know, the GI Bill and started listing off all these really great things and I don't know if he was just like a better sales guy than the other guys, but I was like, yep, all right, we'll do that. But it sounds like he might have been a salesman before he became a recruiter because every branch has the GI Bill. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I don't know how what the you know difference is in uh, female-male population, but I know like on my ship in the Navy, it was 10 to 1. So maybe did you feel like there was a lot, you were surrounded by a lot of females in the Army? Did that come true? Oh, no. No. <laughs> Um, I think when I got to my first unit, there were like three of us. Salesman of the year. Yeah, for Army exactly. Recruiter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, where did you do your basic training? So I did my basic at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Okay. And I, I joined at a really, you know, I mean, obviously we had just had the September 11th. It just happened. Um, and by the time I got to basic in the military entrance processing portion of it, where you get all your shots and all of that, right. um, it was Thanksgiving. Oh, so I got like an extra week there because all the cadre left to go home with their families. And like it was a skeleton crew to watch over, you know, the new recruits until we actually got to uh -huh. um, whatever unit we were assigned to for basic. So it was really crazy. I actually celebrated my 19th birthday in military entrance processing. <laughs> and they, at and, MEPS. And that, yeah. And, Great um, place to spend your birthday. Right. And, but here's the thing. The, the women that I was... Uh, housed with they made me coupons like oh. for my birthday like they want the only we had no money we had no way to like get anybody a gift but we had pen and paper so they were like you know one free boot shine braid your hair you know make up your bunk and 
I still like remember that and think about that often because here we are all in this new place and they still found a way to celebrate my birthday there. And, and don't, you know, get it twisted. Those are very valuable gifts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going to make my bunk. You're going to shine my right, shoes. Right, right. Yeah. I never enjoyed shining shoes, especially when they made you like spit on them. Yeah, that was never fun. <laughs> I was like, this is gross. <laughs> yeah. You get the, the polish all under your nails. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was a wreck. Yeah. That's awful. So um, what did you, what was your job in the army? Um, so I was a 31 Romeo, which they, you know, those, those always change, but that was a multi-channel radio communications operator maintainer. Oh. Yeah. Mouthful. So I, you know, being enlisted, there were a variety of jobs that were open to me after I took the ASVAP and everything, but, um, they, you know, that one not only had a sign on bonus, which was, you know, pretty compelling for a kid like me that had never seen. I mean, I think the year I, I joined, my mom made $11,000 that year. So like a, you know, $20,000 sign on bonus was double wow. what she would have made in a year. So that was like unheard of. Of course. Yeah. And it was like, okay, I'll take that job. Sure. I don't know <laughs> what I'm going to do, but it sounds cool. <laughs> that, was, that was a very long name, but I did yeah. hear something about radios in there. So you were right. in comms. I was comms. Okay. I was comms. And essentially that's what I got assigned to a air defense artillery battery and would do the communications of the, they're called communications relay groups. They, they hook up to satellite and radar you know, was a part of that. And so we would do some of the communications between batteries, at, you know, and you're deployed. Gotcha. How long was the training for that? Uh, so I did training at uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia. So, you know, Signal Corps. Um, and I want to say I was there for like three months. Okay. Yeah. So like and, 12 weeks. And you did deploy, correct? I did. Actually, overseas. I deployed in February of 03. So oh, wow. technically right before we even announced we were going you know, when was the initial invasion of Fallujah? That was in that, yeah. So for Afghanistan, but this was so I, I was in Iraq. Oh, war. Okay. So for, for the Iraq side of the war, that was not until March. Okay, I think March twentieth is when. Okay. Yeah, so that's we, that's the date you remember. Yeah, I think that's the official date, but we were there in February. So I'm always curious because in the Navy, you know, I, I get around by ship. Right. So what is the journey like getting over there? I mean, it must be. I can imagine. So a lot of our equipment didn't come over with us. Initially, they got put on boats, right? Yeah. How are you guys? We help you guys out. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, some of it came over on some of the larger aircraft. So, you know, they call you up, said, hey, time to go. And we were all kind of understood that it was going to happen soon. We just didn't know when. Right. So you get the, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock call in the morning and uh, your bags are already packed. Like, you're just grabbing your bags and going. And it's a long process. You got to get your weapons and all of that. And then you get on these big carriers. And I think I was on a C-17 because we had some trucks on the aircraft with us. So cold uh, on the, you know, long flights and um there's no call button no, right no call button <laughs> and you're just trying to find ways to get comfortable on these you know it's essentially a tin can right well uh, you know hollywood always puts like the the one person on like the C130 with the red straps and everything and they look like tiny com- you know compared to the large aircraft that yeah. they're on i could just picture you sitting there but you were with your unit obviously. i was with my unit yeah, yeah so there's a bunch of us and we were all you know sleeping on each other's shoulders yeah how many went over at once like how many was in an army unit Goodness. I mean, like my battery, there was probably, 
a hundred of us. Okay. Um, okay. But there was you know m- multiple batteries coming going together. Okay. So there was there's maybe like five hundred of us in that initial from you know my unit. Right. And you did, obviously you didn't know all of those soldiers personally. Oh no. How many were like your like my division, I was a boiler mechanic, right? So there was probably like 25 or 30 of us that I knew everything about their kids. You right. know, like I knew them intimately. What was that like in the army? Was that similar? Or? Yeah, so, so like my platoon, because we're comms, we're smaller. So there was maybe 12 of us at okay. the height of that. Um, so those are the people that I'm still friends with today, right. right? And I now get to watch them have children and our families grow, which is really neat. But uh, at the time, we were all just a bunch of kids. I yeah. mean, we're not officers. We're the... You know, I think I was a E2 or E3 when I went over there. It was like nothing. Right. And so, you know, you're, I'm the one that's filling up sandbags yeah. and, and, and helping to kind of establish us there. And so we all were very unsure and didn't know what to expect because communication being what it is doesn't always make it all the way down to the lower ranking folks. So we... I always say this is why I'm flexible and like adaptable to any situation today because I'm used to hurrying up and waiting. I'm used to letting people do their thing and figuring out where I fit in because that's all of what we did. And that's what we put on our resumes today, yeah. right? Like we could stand at parade rest for 17 hours and then still be able to like, you know, answer the phone. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's my, my skill in the civilian world. Right. <laughs> Hurry up and wait. How do we translate this? <laughs> exactly. Right. Okay. So how long were you over there? Like was it, I think a deployment's like nine months or? Well, so it was really interesting because of our our unit and because of the where we were. So we initially were in Jordan um, because this was at the start of the war. And I think my unit was only over there, at, you know, for this first deployment for four months. Okay. And we had a very specific job because I don't know how much I can talk about, but they, we were, while stationed there, it was our job to make sure that the country of Jordan was safe. And we also... Uh, you know, we, there was other units and, you know, Air Force and uh, Marine Corps that also operated out of some of the same bases that we were on. We were relatively close to the Iraqi border. It was a, a shorter deployment, though, you know, there were many that came after that. Not for me because of the way my service worked. Right. That was the only time I was deployed overseas. Oh, good. Um, I'm happy to hear that because like a lot of times, you know, and you, and it almost sounds like you're like, oh, yeah, it was shorter than most. But when I have to explain to people, no, I was never in combat. I follow that with like, thank God. You right. know what I mean? Like right. I was I was safe on my ship. And so I feel kind of the same way when I hear that. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. It was like four months. She got out of there. Right. Right. And, you know, I at the time, I was, being a young person, you know, 19, 20 years old, it for me was I was a complete honor for me to be there. Oh, yeah. And I think maybe that's why I say it with like a little bit of reluctance, like, man, I wish it was more. I wish I could have done more. I wish I could have been there to to do more. Um, but I see a lot of the other folks that I serve with that went on to do more and some of the impacts of that on them and their lives now. You know, so there are – yeah, there, it's, a, it's a trade-off. Yeah, you hear about veterans that had three and four tours. Right. And you can – and you just um, can't even – I can't imagine – what that's like for them and and the family right. as well, you know. So, what was it like when you got when you got back? Did you go back to your base or? Yeah, so I went back to my base, and you know, we just kind of reintegrated back into life again. Some people struggled worse than others. For me, it was you know, it was what it was. Yeah. Um. I at the time I didn't have children. I didn't you know that was 
not an equation for me. So I saw other people have a harder time with that. And I, you know, other moms that I served with, you know, when they would get letters home from their kids and like, yeah. it would break my heart. I'm, I'm the youngest of 10. Yeah. So I have all wow. these nieces and nephews that would send me stuff, but it was always just a little bit different. Yeah. It's a little different. I don't have kids, but I do have nieces and nephews. And, yeah. but I can't imagine being the youngest of 10. <laughs> yeah. How about that? And now were you still in the Carolinas when you got home from Iraq? No, I actually was at Fort, uh, Fort Bliss, Texas. So that was okay. where I got stationed after Georgia and okay. moving out to Fort Bliss. Gotcha. Not as blissful as the say, title. Of did it. you like it there? <laughs> um, El Paso, Texas is an interesting place. And it's a, it's a lot different now than it was when I was there. But it had its upsides and its downsides. I'll say that. Well, give me like, I always like to, you know, kind of dive in there and say, give me an example of an upside and a downside. You can pick which one you want to do first. So I'll go with the upside. I'm more of a positive person. <laughs> so the upside was that it was a really beautiful country, right? There, you were in a mountainous region and it was a part of the country I'd never been to before. So it was, it was a really great experience to kind of learn the culture uh, because there is so much of the Hispanic culture in El Paso. So some of the best Mexican food I've ever eaten. <laughs> so there's a lot of that. The downside is that it is hot. <laughs> it gets really, really hot. And when you go out to the field, you're in the sand. Right. So, I mean, it guess it really prepped us for where we were going. Right. But when you're spending a lot of time out in the field, which we did, you got, got a little old. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Did you ever have any... Um I always like to see, you know, you make really good friends when we're in the service, right? Like you said, like lifelong. Yeah. Is there anyone you want to tell me about who maybe wasn't your favorite person? No, <laughs> no, no, no. Here's the thing. I think that while you're in, you do develop relationships where you like some people better than others and some people just get on your nerves or, you know, right. you have somebody who does crazy things. I mean, I think there was a time where I was on uh, duty where you, you know, you're on barracks duty 24 hours sitting at a desk, you know, charge of quarters called CQ. And essentially the guys and girls lived in the barracks on a weekend because you know, it was like a Saturday night. They're out having some fun. Right. And then when it's time to not have so much fun and calm down a little bit, then here I am like an e-nothing trying to tell them, hey, you have to turn down your music. Right. And oh. not getting listened to. Right. <laughs> and then you're trying to find your NCO and you're like, I don't know where that guy went. I don't know where he is. He's sleeping. <laughs> He's or... sleeping in a bathroom somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but it was... Uh, you know, I don't think there's anybody now. So like thinking back to those people that were giving you a hard time. Exactly. Like today, guess what? I'm I'm really glad to see their faces on Facebook and see what they've done with their lives, no matter what the relationship was like 15 years ago. Yeah. And you know what? I think I, I feel so lucky to have Facebook, you know, regardless of the stigma that kind of comes along with it, because um, with the Breakfast Club, a lot of times we do you know, the morning breakfast. And we have World War II veterans who we just had a guy talking the other day that he hasn't spoken to his like his best friend from the service ever again. And like he tried to use the number, you know, and um, you know, I guess he's probably in his 80s or 90s. So that I, I feel the same way. Like even that guy who poured a bucket of water on my head in the boiler room when I fell asleep on watch one time, yeah. like it's even pretty cool to see his kids yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, I just had an experience where one of the girls that made those coupons for me uh -huh. uh, for my birthday, um, she's still in. She's a sergeant first class, and she lives in Hawaii, but she just did some training down in Charlottesville, Virginia. And she had a long weekend for the 4th of July, and within her radius was my house here in Pittsburgh. 
Uh-uh. And so she instant messages me on Facebook and is like, hey, Battle, can I come up? Without a doubt, I just literally I wrote back, yes, and here's my address. Like, yeah, no conversation. No conversation. You just come. And wow, I got chills. (laughs) It was so wonderful to see her. Like, she was one of my very first friends in the army. And here we are, 15, 16 years later, with, you know, deaf, you know, very different life paths that we've gone down. But no matter what, no matter where we are, when she came and spent the weekend with me and my family, it was awesome of like course. it was like no wonder we were friends because we still are and we just pick up where we left off and yeah. that's what the that's what the army did for me that's what the military does for so many of us i hear that so much and it really is a neat a neat part of serving the relationships that you make you know with your with your fellows so what is what are you what are you doing now? Like what's uh, I, I know you have a lot of great things to share with us so i want to make sure to save some time for that yeah so um you know, when I served in the army, I struggled a lot with my weight. And I think uh, uh, there's many women that did. But for me, when I went to join, they actually told me I was too too fat and mm-hmm. I needed to lose weight before I could join. Was this a recruiter? I, I can't remember where we got my first tape test. Yeah, I think it was the recruiter. It was in the recruiting station because they, you know, they take your height and weight to kind of see right. where you fall out with your, you know, BMI and whatnot. And yeah, so they're like, you're, you got to lose some weight. And they gave me like this ridiculous meal plan to follow of like tuna fish and crackers for right. five days and uh, running with garbage bags <laughs> underneath sweat clothes, you know, you know like yeah. here's a five-day membership to LA Fitness, use it. And I did. Like, and they I, want you to do it in five days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, thanks for lose, all the time. Like, right. Lose 10 pounds in five days, go. And I was like, okay, this doing healthy. it. healthy. Right. Let's do this. And for me, I wanted to go. You know, September 11th had just happened. The reason I joined was because my community, growing up poor, growing up with a waitress for a mom and a dad who was uh, a maintenance worker in a hotel and sometimes, you know, drove a tow truck, we had to rely on things like food stamps and free lunch and, you know, food banks in our community at the holidays to make sure we had a turkey on our table. And so when September 11th happened, for me, this was a way that I could give back to this community that had done so much for me um, and my family. So when I went to join and they told me I couldn't because of this one thing, I was like, nothing is going to stop me. I'm going to lose this weight. I'm going to do this. And I did, fortunately. However, I didn't learn the right way to eat. I didn't have that nutrition education. My education for food was just being grateful that when I opened the refrigerator door, there was food. There was, right. So... Like while I was in, they don't talk to you about good food in the military either. I mean, like you see what they serve in the chow hall. Yeah. So I had a lot of white rice and and salads right. <laughs> over the years I was in. So there's not, you know, there was never a lot of option or education happening there either. So I would struggle with my weight, which meant I'd have to go on special pop PT, which is doing PT twice a day. And for me, it wasn't PT. I maxed out my run, which means I think I ran it in like 14 and a half minutes. Right. I maxed out my push-ups doing like 50 push-ups and I could do sit-ups for days. But I still, like, so doing extra PT was not going to help me. It was, I needed an education in food. So I got out, had some kids And I'm like, I can't feed my kids this stuff. Like, what am I eating? (laughs) So I essentially educated myself and Mm -hmm. recognized that our kids aren't getting a nutrition education. I didn't get it. So many people don't get it. That's why we have an obesity issue in this country. So I founded a nonprofit called American Nutritional Security. And what we do is look for ways to not only educate our kids on food, but kind of change the food procurement process for schools. 
So going local, because right now, especially here in Pennsylvania, where our number one industry is agriculture, we've got a lot of farms and we've got a lot of farmers that can provide and be that procurement source for schools. You know, have the farm down the street be the one that's providing the sweet potatoes or the cabbage. Right, instead or, of Papa John's. Or, or Papa or John's or doing. even like <laughs> shipping from out of state. So actually one really interesting statistic is we spend $500 million in Pennsylvania on school lunch or school meals, right? Breakfast and lunch. Of that, only 3% is spent in Pennsylvania oh. with Pennsylvania farmers. Well, there certainly seems like there's a need for a middleman there to connect the far- local farms Farm, right. with the schools. So right. that's where you came in? So that's where I come in. And trying to create this relationship between school districts, between farmers, to get their produce, to get their, you know, whatever it is they're farming, whether it's chicken or whatever, into school districts. And not only just because we see it as a national security issue, we have obese kids, kids can't join the service even if they wanted to because they struggle with obesity like I did, but also as an economic stimulus for the state. For every dollar we spend sourcing food locally, we actually put $2.16 back into local economies. So it actually makes a lot of sense. Not only do our kids get a better nutrition, we bring farmers in to educate them on the food that they're eating, and then the farmers are then helping to stimulate the economy across the state. Right, and so they're not. The, we're not the first organization to think of this. I mean, there are school districts in Los Angeles, the LA Unified School District. They do this with their farmers there, so it's not. It's not uncommon. Right, and I, I've heard of different, like um, certain schools that you know grow their own gardens, and they teach the children how to harvest those crops and how to prepare them, and they yep. teach them about them. Um, I, I admire what you're doing. I think it's great. And I and I years ago I read that report, Too Fat to Fight. Yep. Have you read that? I have one in three. Is that the, I forgot it was a while since I've read it, but one in three will be un, um, yeah. ineligible, ineligible. Yeah, one in three young adults between the ages of 17 and 24 are unfit for military service due to obesity. Wow. There's certainly a burgeoning need. And and that's kind of something that's sweeping the nation, not only with you know military service and being eligible for that, but just in general. Right. I applaud what you're doing with that. And I know that this kind of ties into the other fabulous thing you're doing right now, which is running for office. Yeah. So I'm also running for lieutenant governor. As this nonprofit, I you know, started to see that there was a really need for a policy change, right? We, we as a commonwealth can help support our schools. You know, I I ran for office before. Um, I ran for Congress back in 2012 in the 16th Congressional District. I lost that race, but I learned a heck of a lot. And I think that taking some of those experiences from that campaign and taking a lot of my experiences, not only growing up as a poor kid and my military service, but these ideas about how we can actually stimulate the economy here, how we can actually grow Pennsylvania. And I said to my husband, you know, I think I'm going to run for lieutenant governor. <laughs> and he looks at me because of who he is. And he says, yep, let's do it. Oh, wow. What a great response. Yeah, he's great. He's a great dad. He's a great spouse. And he's running my campaign. So, um, And your campaign manager. Yeah, and my campaign manager. <laughs> and, you know, he and I talk about this a lot. And we talk about ways that we can be bettering our community. So part of the campaign our service projects. Mm. And so I look at what the Mission Continues does, and I look at what Team RWB does and what uh, Team Rubicon does and all of these veteran service organizations, and they inspire me. 
And so when I said to him I wanted to run, not only do I want to run on a uh, platform of trying to increase the local economy here in Pennsylvania, but I also want to run on a platform of service and what that means to young people, what that means to communities, and what that means to families. So as a part of this campaign, we go out and volunteer our time and our energy and our effort to other organizations that have service projects as well. Wow, that's oh, that's admirable because, you know, I just, that was my favorite part of, you know, when I got into the Mission Continues, you know, you really get up there, you pull up your sleeves and you're doing physical work. And at the end of the day, you can kind of turn around and be like, wow, I did that. Um, and you're setting an example for the youth in the community and you're getting them moving too, right? right? You're getting them away from the, the TVs and the video games. You're getting them outside and their hands in the dirt, getting them moving. Yeah. So do you have any ideas? Um you know, for the coming next couple months, like any kind of service projects you have in mind, like how do you work between the farms and the schools and kind of make that project happen? What does that look like? So a lot of the work that we've been doing with the nonprofits on hold while we work through the campaign. Okay. But what I see the way that we are participating in service projects for the campaign is, you know, when the mission continues, has a, a service project going on in Homewood or there's one coming up soon, yeah. you know, registering, going, gotcha. you know, throwing on the blue T-shirt. And it's not about trying to get more people to vote for me. It's just about showing others what it means to taking an active role, right? People can talk all day about what they want to do or what we should be doing. But I think there is some action. And as a army vet, I go, look, like we actually have to roll up our sleeves. We got to throw on our boots and we got to go do some work. And so that's the difference. I don't want to just talk about it. I want to live it. It's a part of my life. I want to teach my kids that this is this is how we better our community. This is how we better our little portion of the world. I think the votes will naturally come with leading by example like that. I have faith that those votes will just roll right in, Ariana. I know it. Thanks, Laura. And next time we have you back, I'm going to have to call you like Lieutenant Governor yeah, Barringer. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's a, a specific title, but to be honest, I'm not. I don't know. What we, might want, we might want to research that. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to Google after this one. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was our pleasure to have you today. Oh, thank you for having me. This was uh, really great to share my story. So thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app.